Greetings and welcome back to episode number 93 of the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. Today's guest came to me by way of Same Skin Community, so shout out to Same Skin. I got to interview Miroki Tong, who started her Instagram account, Nine Ounces Please, talking about her history with wine, but really we get into how much she's been able to pivot over the last decade in her business, in her life, and incorporate all of these passions into what she does. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Kiss my aesthetic, branding, marketing, entrepreneurship. You're listening to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Winterstein of MKW Creative Co., where we build brag-worthy brands through visual identity design and social media. You're in the right spot for branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship advice, so enjoy the episode. Greetings and welcome back to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. I'm so excited to have Maroki on the pod today. Welcome, Maroki. Hello. Hi. I'm so excited to have you on. I found your interview through Same Skin, which of course is one of our clients. And of course, I love everything wine. So I knew we were going to connect right off the bat um, with that. But for anyone who doesn't know you yet, can you tell us who you are and what you do and a little bit about how you got started? Sure. Uh, Let me see if I can keep this as concisely as possible because I probably have one of the most complicated histories ever. So let's start uh, with the wine first. So I have a wine Instagram called Nine Ounces Please, the number nine ounces please in full words. And uh, I think as most of you know, the nine ounce pour means you really love the wine. You want a really big pour. So uh, my Instagram's very much dedicated to, you know, finding great things to pour in your glass. I love making wine accessible. I like finding the great bargain wines out there, you know, wines that just punch way above their price point. And I do a lot of, um, I do a lot of talking about diversity in wine and how to make wine, you know, accessible to not just people that we, you know, like think that it should be accessible to, but to all, but to different cultures and just being aware that there's, you know, so much opportunity to make wine connect with different audiences. How do we make wine connect better with different audiences or whether it's, you know, and it's it food pairings, whether it's education, whether it's industry and stuff like that. So for me in wine, I always had a passion for the industry. It's something that I've just had like a personal love for, for over 10 years, I would say, um, I did it very much for myself, you know, wanted to speak to producers, wanted to just learn and be super geeky about it. Thought about working in the industry once upon a time. It just never, you know, the, the paths never crossed. It never just came to be. And during the pandemic, I think like a lot of us, we were reassessing what we wanted to do with ourselves. And I thought to myself, well, if I start Instagram, it seems like a pretty low-key way for me to just like dip my pinky toe into the world and just share what I love. And I guess people liked what I what I write. So <laughs> so that account came up. It's a very much a side project for me. By day I'm a strategic management consultant. Mostly work with, you know, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, small businesses, probably because a lot of my personal experience stems from that industry. I've been an entrepreneur essentially my entire life. Before I was a consultant, I was a professional actor and producer for 10 plus years. Uh, defied my parents, was supposed to become an engineer, all that good stuff. And uh, Ooh, yeah. didn't do that. Yeah, didn't do that. Didn't follow the kind of standard, you know, like good Chinese kid thing. Very much was a rebel. Did okay. that for 10 years. Now I do consulting for 
solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, small businesses, whether it's because they're beginning to scale and they've you know, hit a point in business, they're like, oh, I need to make a big change. I'm not really sure how to make those changes. Even people who are, or even just helping someone who's starting out. It's like, I've never gone down this entrepreneurial path in my life. I want to start my own business. Where do I begin? So, you know, you name it, you got it. I think I'm a little bit of like a kitchen sink, jack of all trades. Yeah, kind that's of nice though. <laughs> that's, those are all great skills to have. There's so many things I want to revisit just from your intro, but I think you pulled on a lot of really interesting things that I'm also interested in, right? And our connection being same skin, Michelle brought that project to my team. And I said, absolutely, I can't wait to get my hands on this because it's something that I truly believe and bringing more diverse stories and experiences to the entrepreneurship landscape. Right. So tell me about what you said, something about diversity in wine and bringing the more diversity into the space of around wine to kind of defy the stereotype of who we think drinks wine. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And I'd also love to hear the kind of being the rebel part of it. So you choose which well, which route can we go first? Um, let's talk about the rebel part first, because I think yeah. it's easier. Uh-huh. And then uh, we'll open the can of worms yes. that is diversity in wine because I think whatever I have to say will barely scratch the surface is very much the experiences I'm sure professionals in the industry will have so much more to say than I ever would in, in probably a more eloquent way but I will do my very darndest um, when it comes to being a rebel I mean it's interesting because I think I think being a rebel is something that may not necessarily be defined as such if you were not raised in the same households mm. as people like me are and with the particular immigrant family values that we have. Um, I don't think everyone gets punished or penalized for choosing the arts over something extremely pragmatic like engineering or uh, being a doctor. Totally. And for me, it was, right? It was... You know, since I was a child, I was being raised and conditioned to pursue a really specific path in life because, you know, when you have parents who came to a new country, came from nothing, had to really scrape and work very, very hard to be at where they at, they want their children to have extremely stable lives. And of mm-hmm. course, picking a very specific profession, like a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, I think for them equals having a stable life because for them, you know, financial stability defines that or maybe success in the eyes of society or even not even just society is broad, but maybe just in your own community. So for me, choosing the arts meant becoming rebellious for me and meant choosing something that I cared about and was very, very passionate about. And it was, you know, an identity that defined me because I did something that essentially no one else in my family did. And, you know, I will call it being a rebel because of that. But maybe, maybe the truth is, is as we continue to grow, as new generations come up, maybe it just means what I did makes it more normalized for other people like me to pursue what they want and do what they want in their lives, as opposed to what is defined by the generations before them. Totally. I remember this in college. I was a fine arts and art history major. And there was another girl who was my year who told me that her parents would not pay for her college education if she only majored in art. They would only help her pay if she got a double major in accounting because they weren't going to 
spend as much money as they did for her university education if she wasn't going to have a backup plan to her passion. And I I never had that pressure from my parents. My family is very entrepreneurial, very creative. And, and they were like, yeah, study what lights you up and you'll kind of find your way. And I'm realizing how rare that is still. It is. I... I'd like to think it's getting better. Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you. It's not like I've seen the stats or anything, but it's really difficult to undo many, many, many years of your upbringing, mm-hmm. right? I think mm-hmm. like, there's a reason why so much of us in therapy constantly say, our parents, or, you know, uh-huh. like our generations did this and this and this to us because we're so impressionable as young people. And of course, we want to make our parents proud. I mean, even the entire time I picked an entire, you know, even the entire time I was rebelling and I was like, I don't care what you think about me. Mm-hmm. I don't need you in my life. Of course, there's a small part deep in self that just wants to be loved by your parents and you want your parents to tell you that they're proud of you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot to unpack and it follows you way far into your adulthood. And it's like, how do we, you know, um, there's a lot of conversations now about intergenerational trauma. So how do we as a generation start addressing our intergenerational trauma so that we do not kind of carry that forward and affect our future generations that come after us. Because that's something that we, even if we grow up with um, with a better life, that doesn't necessarily mean our mindset has shifted and can, you know, use that to influence those who come after us. Yeah. You bring up a really good point here too, because it doesn't even need to wait an entire generation. Sometimes it's just about setting the example. So I think about this with within my community and with something like the podcast. I hope to have the conversations that I felt like weren't existing in this space yet. I hope to have people on that are not just a bunch of people in my industry, but outside the industry, because I still think that there's things we can learn from each other or to pass on tips or to host within my Facebook group. We're actually getting ready right now for this design challenge where I'm teaching people my process. And someone might argue, like, why would you teach a bunch of your competitors your process? And I said, because I think there's enough jobs for everybody. And I'd rather see people do it well than to gatekeep that information. And I know within like the wine to get jump back over to the wine kind of side of things. I know there's a very like gatekeepy kind of culture around wine. Is that is that a correct assumption? Yeah. And actually, when you when you started bringing up that whole thing about competition, I was like, "Ah, I see the segue Uh to talk about gatekeeping in wine, diversity in wine, forget even the talking about cultural diversity in wine. I think there's a lot of industry gatekeeping in wine overall. I think people are very, very territorial in that industry. You know, before we talk about even cultural diversity, there's also gatekeeping of women in Mm -hmm. wine as Mm -hmm. well. You know, it is very much a, a white male dominated culture. I actually had another interview recently about this, where, you know, they asked me, where do you think it all stems from? And I think, you know, there's a lot of historical roots in it. The entire formal educational system is involved in it. There's an inherent classism that when it comes to wine and fine wine and even pursuing education in wine, which um, tends to benefit the white patriarchy, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. so to say. And over years, it, uh, it kind of creates a self-selection process, right? You either do not go into wine because it is not something you can afford. It was actually, it was one of the reasons why I did not pursue a formal education in wine at the time when I thought about working in wine is that it said you needed a lot of the positions I was looking for said you needed a minimum of 
W said to this and I just finished my MBA. I just finished, you know, another few years of school. And I went, I can't, you know, this is not within right. my capability at this moment. And the, the time came and went, you know, people self-select themselves out because they either do not feel welcome in the community and not everyone has the capacity to put up with harassment, put up with feeling shamed or unwanted. So, you know, you just choose not to participate at all. So, yeah, so I think there's definitely gatekeeping there. And then what you said about that there is enough work for everyone. One thing I also discussed is when you feel like there's a very limited space for you at the table, you know, there's like maybe everyone has the the token BIPOC person, the token woman, token LGBTQ person, you start creating a lot of internal competition within the same generation of people. You know, everyone thinks, well, there's only space for one of us at this table. So now we all have to fight each other. And that shouldn't be the case, right? If we really want to be, if we want to be change makers and if we want to make a difference, we have to learn to support each other as women, support each other as minorities, support each other as BIPOC people, LGBTQ people, anyone, you know, or people with disability. We have to learn to make sure that we raise each other up because that's the only way you can make a rather established, archaic system shift. Mm-hmm. Right, and it it's due to shift. It's due. It's overdue to shift. And I think I think about that with entrepreneurship. I think about that with a lot of the business owners that I work with. Is I'm really drawn to people that are shaking things up and like being cycle breakers and breaking into a new space. And to your point, I think it's also the responsibility of people who are white to be good allies and to recognize, like, hey, listen, like we would benefit from having people from all different backgrounds at this table, right? Or we would we don't even know what we don't know. But being stuck in our own ways is not helping anyone other than creating more exclusivity and more I don't know. How do you interpret that? Kind of like where where is that role between because obviously you're speaking from your experience as a BIPOC person. I'm not. And how would you then explain to me or help me work through like where do you think as white people, we can be doing such a better job because I really think we can. <laughs> I, I would encourage people to s- stop just writing, putting lip service out there, like stop writing. True. I'm reflecting. True. I think, it, you know, I, a lot of us talk about our exhaustion, our collective exhaustion and feeling like we're in d- disappointment, right? I think that's where a lot of that exhaustion comes from. It's like if two years later, people are still reflecting over you know, the death of extreme, you know, the, some of the extreme tragedies and some of the extreme injustices that have happened in the last couple of years, then what are you still reflecting about? We've seen these issues time and time and again, all throughout the course of history. We've been taught in schools, why do we need to still be reflecting on it? We know what the action points are. Half the people have told you what the action points are. Just do it, right? And stop being afraid that someone's going to come along and take your job, so to say, right? I've, Back when I was an actor, I had straight up people tell me like, oh, it's so lucky for you to be a person of color right now because they're they're casting more because they have diversity mandates. They they need to cast, you know, taxi drivers and convenience store owners. This is the words they said to me. They knew tax more oh like my gosh. they're casting more service people. I'm like, thank you. You're telling me that they're casting people like me as service people um, and not as leads, but, you know, how dare we take your acting job? You know, we're seen as nothing but sort of someone who serves a main character. Yeah, what? Yeah, so I would say, you know, take action, carve spaces, 
give opportunity, speak up, like speak up on behalf of BIPOC people, even if it means just saying the things you've already learned, right? The resources exist out there. I think one of the things I struggle with is when someone says to me, I've actually had a number of people approach me over the last couple of years saying, I really want to support. I don't really know what to say. I don't think I am the right person to say it because I'm a white male. Sure, and sure. I went, but you're the perfect person to say it because they're not listening to me. Right. When when people like me, speak, we're, we're shouting from the rooftops. It's part of my everyday dialogue. It's my lived experience. But regularly people say, oh, you're you know, you're look you're looking too deeply into things or like you're imagining things or they're saying or they just don't listen. They just don't hear you. Right. We become just part of the noise. But if someone who is already in a position of privilege speaks up, they do listen more. Mm-hmm. And so we we need that help for someone else to speak up on our behalf and maybe not seize the platform. I, I'm sure you've heard, you know, there's times where people then just use, will sometimes use someone else's platform to kind of further themselves. I'm not saying do that. Speak up and then give them a platform to speak. Yeah, holding space. And I think that's a really great opportunity too to kind of I'm a big fan of talk the talk, but you better also be walking the walk. If you're just talking and it's a performative kind of thing, right? And it's just holding, like saying that you believe in all these things, then you better also be backing it up with your actions. And that's why like our team is so proud to take on same skin as a client, because here's an entire network dedicated to uplifting stories. And if we can be part of their success, then like, that's amazing because there's so much to be gained from that. Like there's so much interesting insights that again, like there's such a different perspective that that comes to the table when you're reading all these stories. And although people come again from totally different backgrounds and are in totally different industries like yourself, the more that you read of them, I'm finding there's so many similarities as well of like what it's like to kind of overcome an obstacle or overcome, be kind of the underdog in a space, which obviously you have experience doing with it sounds like on the professional side and with your your passion project. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it follows you, right? It was uh-huh. it was actually uh-huh. funny when I when I started the wine Instagram. I very much just started being like, "This is gonna be fun. It's gonna be just like me and wine." And then when you know, I started kind of getting into the underbelly of the industry. I went, "Of course, of course, this exists in wine." Like, how naive was I? How naive was I? And I thought I was just going to be in this happy place and just talk about these happy things. It's like, no, 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 of course. These problems completely exist in this industry too. Um, Of course, I'm going to need to talk about it because this is something that has permeated every part of my being my entire life. I'd be lying to myself if I wasn't going to try and say something here. I also can't keep my mouth shut, frankly. You're like Like, me. Yeah. You have to shake it up. You can't not shake it up. You're like, oh man, here we go again. Like I've been here this, I've done this before. Right. That's super important. What are your favorite and least favorite things about the wine industry? My favorite things, tasting wine. Well, yeah, I'll take that. Absolutely. Absolutely. it, It sounds so cliche, but obviously I, got into this because I really love wine. Where did and that it's come not just from? Like, Where did the love of wine come from? Who introduced you? How did you get hooked on the whole idea of wine? I I like connoisseurship. Like yes. I like deep diving into things. If things have a culture and has, you know, layers of knowledge to peel back, I'm into it. So, you know, I was really into tea culture for a while. I studied tea. 
how to use roasted teas from different regions of China, you know, tasting the nuances between different green teas, different roasts. I was like that in the coffee. I'm like that about food. I was like that about gel pens when I was 11. Like, you know, it's like, or like, you know, I was like that about Pokemon, right? If there's a thing that I can dive into and learn a lot about, I've got it. So I kid you not, I was in my last year of university. At that time, I was like kind of tickling my way to scotch. I was kind of moving past the whole like, I'm just going to drink all the things and start being like, I want to drink things that I like. And one day I went, I want to get into wine. I think there's a lot to learn about wine. And I think I sat in my room with a glass of yellowtail. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, with a glass of, come on, man. I was fourth year university. It was all I could afford. Fair enough. Um, and just, you know, swirling it and kind of putting my face in it and smelling it and going, I'm smelling familiar things. I can't put my finger on it. And then uh-huh. starting to recognize things like, wow, trying to decipher, you know, sense of smell, sense of taste when you don't have a prompt when you don't have the item in front of you, right? Like you see it in, you know, cooking competitions all oh, the time. And it always right? sounds so pretentious you. and it always sounds so over the top. You're like, you're not getting fresh cut grass and pineapples out of this. And you're like, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. But, but even just learning how interesting that our senses are all interconnected, right? Like when you blindfold the, sh- you know, that's why in those competitions, when you blindfold the chef and all of a sudden they're tasting everything wrong, it's like, wow, like without our visual reference, We actually don't know what the hell we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So learning to really calibrate that and then starting to dive deeper into the industry, right? Look, when I started speaking to winemakers and to producers and they're talking about their process and you start learning about how, why Pinot Noir tastes different than Cabernet Sauvignon, right? And why Chardonnay tastes different than Pinot Grigio. And you're like, wow, these things, this is a grape. Like this is something that grew in a vineyard. And it, it has a very distinctly different taste uh-huh. than this grape. Uh-huh. And then how can a winemaker transform it with, you know, the choices that they make, whether it's putting into oak, the kind of oak that they that they do, or maybe even doing stainless steel. Now people are doing things like aging in concrete. Yeah. And then when it goes in the bottle, that transforms again. And then you, you look at the marketing side of it. How do you now take this bottle that is an agricultural product and turn it into this kind of like premium product mm-hmm. that is selling on the market? And one thing I like to do when I get really nerdy about, when I started getting nerdy and nerdy about wine is how can I explain to the consumer the value of what's in this glass, right? Wine has this very you know, large spectrum from people willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars for a bottle to people who are unwilling to pay more than $10 for a bottle. Mm-hmm. And people, because everyone sees it as a premium product, but it's like at the heart of it, it's an agricultural product, which means there's a lot that happens and the margins are very, very slim, right? Yes. If you think about it, things literally have to, they have to grow on a vine, survive all the conditions of happens of growing to a vine from frost to drought, to flood, to fire, being picked and then from not get spoiled from the from the day it's harvested all the way to the final bottle there's a lot that can go wrong in between there and a lot of work that goes in between there and somehow it's being sold for $20 on the shelf like honestly there's times where my mind's still blown how something can be sold at that price i i remember i picked up i think i like picked up this really um amazing value portugal portuguese white wine recently 
and they were saying it's all hand harvested. I'm like, how? How, how did you hand harvest oh this? Gosh. And it's becoming I'm like, you know, I'm like either you're picking at the speed of light. Right. Or I mean they do, like these pickers, they're they're extremely fast. But still, right? If you think right. about what we what, what we've in charge these days or what's considered a standard of living, right? How does this translate to the final bottle? So yeah, it's just one of those things. Like, how can I educate consumers to make these decisions yes. and also understand they're they're buying, they're not just buying like a product that they're just, oh, like a consumable product, quick enjoy at home, whatever. You're buying like the stories, the history, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. effort, the labor, the artistry uh-huh. that goes into a bottle. And that's where I feel like the wine, although maybe it felt like a tangent to begin with, is so related to branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship. Like there's such a clear link for me and I'm super foodie, like love food, love wine. I My first exposure to wine in the context that you're talking about was on study abroad. My science credit was like culture of food and wine. And we had to, we had wine pairings with the food and we're understanding how like the fat content of the food changes the mouthfeel of the wine, right? And learning about how all that stuff is connected for me, I'm like, oh, so like logos and fonts and colors and photography, like how all of that connects to tell a story. But there's so much, you're right. There's so much work that goes from vine to glass that- I think the more we get into that story and you get invested in the story and you start to identify where those little changes can take place to like change the nuance of the experience of the thing. And the fact that it's such a longstanding tradition, winemaking, is so fascinating to me. The craftsmanship of like the tradition of wine is so cool. There's something I've been dying to tell you about and it's something that I'm keeping on the hush hush. So like, don't tell everybody, okay? One of the things I notice with our brand design clients is that they go through the brand design process and they get all their new logos, fonts, colors, patterns, icons, everything. And then they're not totally sure how they're supposed to be using them on social media. Enter the one-on-one Kiss My Assets Canva Sprint Day. I know that's a mouthful. Stay with me. Basically, this is a three-hour session with me that is part assets, part strategy, part clarity, and low-key Canva training on how to use all of your brand elements together to make templates that you can then DIY for your biz. So think post templates, stories, graphics, email graphics, anything that you are going to be making on a regular basis on behalf of your business, we can create them together in a three-hour sprint inside your Canva account. You can walk away with those templates right at the end of the session and put them straight to use. These can be booked on my website. There are only a limited number of spots per month to book the one-on-one day. And the link that you're going to want to look for is mkwcreative.co slash kissmyassets. That's mkwcreative.co slash kiss, K-I-S-S, my assets, A-S-S-E-T-S. Get it? Like social assets. Kiss my ass. You know, we're being funny. We're a little cheeky. Uh, But the plan here is to really create as much content for you as we possibly can so that you can go out there and DIY your brand in the best brag-worthy version of what you envision for your business and really kind of get those clients rolling in. Check that out. Book it online. You can book it anytime. There are a limited number of spots per month. So if I were you, I'd get on it sooner rather than later. Back to the episode. I like what you said about kind of understanding how the heck the wine ends up on the shelf at that price point, right? (laughs) Especially for us being nerds about business and like process and supply chain and all of those factors. I know a lot of people shop for new wine based on the label design, right? So they may have no idea what they're even looking for. They might know kind of the 
type of wine that they like. But let's talk about that kind of phenomenon of how it visually presents itself and what draws us into wines. Do you have like pointers or, or like uh, anything that you're like, you know what, this is the kind of wine that strikes me as something I would take a risk on. You know, so I'm a weirdo. I, when I buy wine, sometimes when the label is extra ugly or extra like handmade, Uh I'm always thinking, aha, here's someone who's, you know, they care more about what's in the bottle yeah. than the marketing because some wine is all smoke and mirrors, totally, right? Totally, There's definitely companies that, you know, it's like a lot of really mass-produced, machine-made. Um, what they have is powerful branding. And if they, you know, put a really nice label on, someone's, of course, going to buy it. So, you know, someone who buys – I buy a lot of local wine. I love visiting boutique wineries. So sometimes when the bottle's like barely off the line or – you know, there are companies, so they're like hand labeling everything mm-hmm. and something that they maybe have printed out of their own inkjet printer back in the day. Right? The yeah, labels totally. Like, like, yeah, give me that. Um, the interesting thing about wine labels, too, is, you know, wine labels are also put on because of regulation. That's part mm-hmm. of the reason why wine labels have to go on, you know, if they're, if they're not you know, in America, there's very specific things like the, you know, the alcohol levels need to be put on, how it's produced needs to put on. So obviously branding comes along and 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 is a part of that. Honestly, I love reading the backs of the labels more in the yeah, front. Same. Not to say that I can't be suckered in by a really sexy label. I will totally admit I've bought wine because I think the label is awesome. In fact, okay, hold on. I'm going to turn around. Yes, so I'd love to see some examples. What you got? I know. I know we're on a podcast, but, but just okay. to show you really... I'm going to show you this. Okay. There's a okay. Okay. I was, my friend actually gave this to me. I saw it on, he, he was sharing it on Facebook. He got a long time ago and I was like, this wine has a turkey on it. This wine label has a turkey on it. I don't understand. And I'm going to get it just because it has a turkey on it. Yes. Um, so, so, you know, there's times that we're brought in, but I, I always do try and, you know, ensure that there's more that goes behind the like beauty's only skin deep. Sort of course. Of, of course. Like, yeah. And I, I tell this to my clients too, right? Like you could have the best branding and marketing in the world. If your business sucks, your business sucks. <laughs> Alternatively, no. you could have the best business in the world, but if your branding and marketing sucks, you're like leaving money on the table in my opinion. So there is that happy medium. Yeah. At some point it's, it's exactly, as you said, finding the happy medium. And that's actually something that happens with a lot of um, smaller producers. They, they kind of sometimes swing one way or the other. Mm-hmm. They're either mm-hmm. very heavy on the branding and they because they are either business owners who decide to start a winery and then they, they hired the experts, but their focus is on the marketing, but then they're ignoring kind of the efforts that go on the back end. Right. And so I'll read about the wine and all the, all saying is like, here's a lovely white. It like pairs well with fish on a summer day. And I go, okay, cool. Um, what are the grapes that's going into yeah. it? <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea what I'm actually about to taste when I right. open this bottle. I, I have zero idea other than apparently on a summer day, I might enjoy it. Right. So whereas there's some producers I know, they're, they're winemakers first, then they start a winery. So it's so technical, right? They're saying, you know, they're saying words like, this is 55% whole cluster fermentation. It comes from this extreme specific vineyard. And, and you know, the soil is clay. And I'm, you know, even that's, I think, considered pretty colloquial for a lot of like wine nerds, so to say, totally. but I'm thinking the average consumer will be like whole cluster. What? Yep. Right? There's yep. a what? And then they don't, they don't really know. So I, I'm always trying to bridge that gap. So how can I take, you know, how can I give you some technical information and while at the same time understanding what's a great story behind 
the wine, right? It's it's fascinating to me. One thing I, I constantly explain to people, it's in, you know, sometimes when you hang around the same circle of people for a while, you forget what, what you know or what other totally, people Totally, totally. For me, one of the big ones is I didn't realize, I, I keep forgetting that so many people don't realize that champagne is only from Champagne, France. Uh-huh. Otherwise, it's sparkling wine. Yep. Otherwise, it is sparkling wine. And there's even different kinds of sparkling wine, right? There's traditional method sparkling, which is the same as what they make champagne, like what's the style they use to make champagne. And then there's Charmat style, which is what they use to make um, Prosecco. Mm. So it's one of those things where people, you know, they think like, oh, you know, I just want some champagne, $15. I'm like, you actually can't get champagne for $15. No, sorry. And then they, <laughs> they, don't, they don't realize that because what they really wanted was sparkling wine. So a lot of times right. when people say to me, oh, I, re- I want some champagne. Do you have a champagne rack? I always ask them. My, my follow-up question is, is it champagne you want or do you just want some bubbly? Yes, yes. Let's make that clarification. Okay, so in your nine ounces, please, Instagram, what are some of those FAQs that come through your DMs? What are people always asking you for advice on? Um, a lot of it's always, I want wine at a certain price point. What do you uh, want? Like, what do you got? It's always, it's always, I want something. Here's my, here's my budget. Um, interesting. Most of my feet, most of my feet is focused on affordability as opposed to luxury. Like some, okay. you know, not to say I don't occasionally talk about, Ooh, I had this baller bottle of wine, but the average bottle of wine I tend to buy is anywhere between, you know, $15, $30 Canadian. Um, yeah. I think, you know, I, I say that because a lot of prices in the U.S., first of all, are better. Uh, we have some pretty intense taxation sure. in, in Ontario and markups sure, sure. when it comes to wine in Ontario. So in the States, you know, I would say like then I would I'm usually spending between $15 to $25 U.S. Mm-hmm. On, on a decent bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. And because I, I, it's like I drink, that's what I drink. And this is what I want to share with people. And and I think a lot of times, I think people, I think affordability still defines a lot of people's purchase decisions Absolutely. when it comes to wine. So usually the budget and then, you know, telling me what they want. Usually, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, it's a red or white. Honestly, a lot of times when people ask me, it's when they want to impress as well. Like they're bringing it to a party. They want something that will... Um, make a good impression on their family and friends. So versus when they someone makes a decision for themselves, they're a little less inclined to maybe ask for advice per se because they don't really need to. They're either going to sure. get what they want or it's not a big deal if it's they get something and they right. hate it, right? right? Whereas when you want to bring something, you if, or if you're spending a little bit more than you're used to spending, you want to feel like you've made a good decision. So there's that. People tend to ask me whether something is ageable mm. or still good. Like sometimes mm. people have pictures of things they have discovered in the their basement. Yeah. And even later, they go, they send me a picture and they're like, what is this? Is it still good? Can I That's drink so it? Funny. That's so yeah, funny. So I would say those are the kind of major questions I get when it comes to wine. And what's your favorite kind of content to share through your nine ounces place social? Is there some stuff that you get so excited? You're like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to tell people this or... Do you go on a lot of different trips to different local wineries? It sounds like you might. Yeah. I mean, I love discovering new regions. I definitely like finding off the beaten path stuff. I love talking about things that people wouldn't really know about. Like, for instance, 
Uh, so usually whenever I travel, I always sort of look up, does wine exist here, right? Yeah. And so I learned that Arizona makes some fantastic wine. And unfortunately, they basically do not sell outside of the state. Like I think you can buy and they'll ship within America. But obviously, like most people don't know about this. So I liked, you know, I like bringing up, raising up new producers, talking about new regions. As someone from Ontario, I love talking about Ontario wine. We make some fantastic stuff. You know, Niagara being our most famous region, but we have other regions like Prince Edward County, which is a little bit further east and a little bit further north. So it's a bit cooler. We have some kind of emerging regions that are happening that are that are cool, climate, like much colder climate regions. Niagara is a little bit more temperate because it has the escarpment. But we make some fantastic wine. You know, everyone, I think most people know Ontario for our ice wine because we export mm-hmm. a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have fantastic Chardonnay, Cabernet Franc, Riesling, Syrah. I mean, we make, you know, a lot of the very, like a lot of the Bordeaux blends. So Cabs, you know, Cab Sauv, Cab Franc, Merlot blends. We're on the same latitude line as like Burgundy, essentially. Oh, really? Okay. A lot, a lot of styles of wine that we make is very Burgundian style. Gotcha. Yeah. So- yeah. And I'm in San Diego. So we have a very similar like latitude longitude of like Italy region, right? Mm-hmm. Rome, Lazio, kind of like the middle, I believe, if I'm thinking of my geography correctly. But I'm definitely like the wino of my friends. I joined like a local wine club here that's considered like an urban winery. So they're purchasing the grapes from Northern California, of course, and then processing them in San Diego. But some of the techniques you talked about, about the different oak barrels or that they do a Sauvignon Blanc in a stainless steel which comes out clear in the glass. It's crazy. There's almost no color to it, but it's so delicious on a hot day. It's so beautiful too. When you, I don't know, I find like almost clear, perfect wines, like super, super cool. Totally. Um, there's a few like sweeter, mis- there's like, there's this um, sparkling Moscato that's made in Ontario and you know, it's like clear, but then there's bubbles and it just looks like this extreme, like, I don't know, just an incredible ocean wave kind of thing so oh my gosh love it so fun there's so there's so much fun stuff to talk about with wine I feel like I know and you know what's funny as as I was saying burgundy I was like is it burgundy or is it Bordeaux I was like oh I knew I knew check myself really really quickly oh my gosh you're too funny you're too funny well we'll trust you either way (laughs) that region the the north (laughs) do you ever have this thing I feel like this is the thing that like everybody probably even entrepreneurs do where you know something like like the back of your hand the moment you say it in public you're like did I do that correctly? Uh-huh. Like, did I just say that? Uh-huh. Like, oh my God, do I? I don't know. There's don't a know. psychological phenomenon for this. And it's hilarious because whenever someone explains it, it's the something, 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 something effect. They talk about it on Armchair Expert all the time. The keening effect or something like this. And by definition, it means speaking of something that you don't know that well. <laughs> so like, that's the irony of saying like, oh yes, there's this psychological thing that we all do as people. And then of course, as you're saying it, you're doing the exact thing that you're referencing. So it ends up kind of this like feedback loop, which is kind of hilarious. Um, but something we always love to ask on the podcast as we're kind of rearing towards the end here, what's something that you think you do particularly well? And what's something you would really like to be better at? And that can go towards the, your more day job side or the wine side or both. I'll let you pick. Oh, something I do particularly well. Feels so loaded. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're just going to brag on yourself. That's all. I think I'm a, 
I'm a really good analytical and strategic thinker. So, and I definitely think I see connections and intersections in a lot of places where sometimes people see disparately. Mm, so mm-hmm. when someone thinks, oh, this could never work with this, or this would never work with that, I would think, of course, they all can work together like this, right? And so I find a lot of horizontal opportunities, or I can find often ways of branching out and creating kind of innovative new ideas. And I think a lot of that comes from a little bit of lived experience. I also studied multi uh, multidisciplinary theater when I was in cool. university. So it's, you know, it's like movement and dance and music, but also like, let's like hang a chair up on the ceiling, like, you know, like doing really, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, doing very kind of interesting. How can we change space? How can we change dimensions? How can we challenge how an object is interpreted? So I think I carried that a lot through my business. Um, And I also think I'm a very, very level-headed thinker. I think a lot of, you know, I always see things in big picture. I don't get, I can both be very detail-oriented, but recognize there's times when you don't need to hyper-fixate on something. So it allows me to kind of make um, more informed decisions as opposed to, you know, just diving into something um, without any regard for, you know, the consequences that can happen. I'm really good at calculated risk. So I think it allows nice. you know, in the world of entrepreneurship for me to make a decision, take a risk, but not to a point where it could really be an all or nothing decision as a result of that. And I use that a lot in the work with my clients as well. I think um, I'd like to think that like, that's one of the reasons why clients really do enjoy working with me. Something I have to work on. I've been, I actually, this one, I actually, I know a little bit better. I've been reflecting on it. So interesting bit. that that for women, it always comes up that way. Right. We always seem to know. Like, well, like, I could do this better. But then when you ask them to say, well, what's something you're good at? They're like, oh, I haven't thought about that in a while. <laughs> well, do you know, um, I remember there's a st- stats out there, a stat out there where when women, apply for a, a job position or, or pitch or something, they have to feel 110% qualified uh-huh. to do it. Whereas men can be like 40% qualified. They're uh-huh. like, yeah, I'm, I'm the shit, man. I'm uh-huh. just going to do it. Uh-huh. I'm not to swear on this podcast. Oh, but of course you can. Of course. Of course. Okay. Yeah. You were just about to say the thing you'd like to be better at. I think I'd like to pivot more towards a sense of like curiosity versus judgment. Ooh, I like this. Explain. I think I I um I think I'm a bit of a judgmental person sometimes when it comes to the amount of knowledge something has or the amount of experience or even just when someone challenges a particular idea I have. I I've reflected on a lot. I think a lot of it comes from having to fight through as many barriers and obstacles and having been punched down as often as I have, you learn how to punch back mm-hmm, quite hard, mm-hmm. right? When you are constantly sort of demeaned and questioned by male CEOs or even just people um, or an industry, you have to learn to defend yourself, right? And I think sometimes it'll, it starts making you put up barriers to the point where you start rejecting new ideas even as yeah. they come in, even if they are valid yeah. or you're constantly on a state of defensiveness and as I think I move into, you know, a latter stage of my life, it's made me realize that sometimes it means that for me, it may come off a little bit unsympathetic. And it's strange because I'm very high empathy. Like I think I'm very, I'm always sensing the energy around me, but I don't necessarily always give sympathy because mm-hmm. even though I read it, 
I might not give it to you. And I think a lot of that came from not wanting to ever feel like I've been taken advantage of. Yeah. Working in my life. And so I'd like to not, now that I'm in a different stage of my life where I don't constantly need to feel like I'm protecting myself or feeling scared or feeling taken advantage of because I'm in a very different stage of my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. hopefully I can, if I change, I want to change that core part of myself so that I can be a little bit more open, be a little bit more curious. And I think that will allow me to grow as a person, but also professionally as well. Absolutely. It's the whole adage and I'm going to botch it. I believe it's a Socrates idea. It's like, I think therefore I am, but it's the more, you know, the less, you know, the more you start to get to know things. And I think some of the best entrepreneurs and the best, most well-rounded business people that I know, they know about like this much of a lot of things, but then they hire the people that are professional and they hire the people that are experts to help them go deep when they need to go deep. And I think that that approach is like such a fun way to look about life, right? Like I'd like to know this much about wine, this much about golf, this much about black holes in space, this much about, you know, like international cultures and cuisine, like, and then be able to dive into each of those little pockets and learn more when you want to learn more. But I think that that has to come with curiosity, right? Mm -hmm, For sure. And I think, uh, I think honestly, it would save me time as well, because the when I know, like, once I know I'm wrong, I know I'm wrong. And I'll always admit when I'm wrong. But instead of fighting my way there, right? Totally. <laughs> it's like resist, resist, resist. It's like if I if I feel like some feedback that has been given to me is legitimate to immediately approach it from a place of curiosity versus feeling like, oh no, like they're accusing me of being less than I am. And I think maybe, again, I think that's why it affects a lot of women or BIPOC people is because it always makes us feel like less than we are because mm. um, that's what they have. And we have to be ready to Sometimes you have to be, you, sometimes it is full of shit. Like sometimes mm-hmm. it's bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is, you know, you being mansplained by someone who doesn't actually know what they're talking about. And yep. some, sometimes it is legitimate. And when you get, you know, when you're constantly getting a barrage of this, you have to find some time to siphon through it. So no, don't be curious about everything because that again leads to a bad situation. But I think I'm in a different stage of my life where I think I know when something yeah. is nonsense, like you feel it, you sense it totally. immediately. And when something is a legitimate piece of feedback. So hopefully, you know, cultivating that other side of me will allow me to just move in the proper directions a little bit quicker. I love all of that. If someone's curious in how to get more information from you, whether the wine or the business strategy side, where can everybody connect with you and find you and follow you online? Yeah. So um, obviously my wine is through my Instagram, nine ounces, please against the number nine ounces, spelled full word, please spelled full word. For my business side of things, you can always find me on LinkedIn, Baroki Tong. I will fully admit I haven't updated my LinkedIn That's in a fine. long time, uh, but it basically is a snapshot of who I am. A lot of my clients have, I've been very, very fortunate in in my in my strategic work that all my clients have just come strictly through word of mouth and references. It's amazing. So yeah. To like put up a website or anything. Um, also, weirdly, years ago. I accidentally let my website domain expire and like some random like Chinese hack company bought it. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I've like never bothered to um, do anything about it since then, but find me on LinkedIn. Um, You can also find me on Twitter at mad gingerbread, like angry gingerbread, mad gingerbread. You'll get a whole smattering of me talking about wine, beer, 
Transformers, anime, comics. Love it. Um, and occasionally me yelling really intensely about social injustice. So Amen it's like to that. Yes. Yeah, it's like Maroki's like everything Twitter, the most unfiltered part of Hell me. yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to go find you on Twitter right after this. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I love talking wine with you. This was so fun. Um, and so I much. wish you many good glasses and bottles of wine in the future. Thank yeah. you. You too. I'm Thanks always so here much. <laughs> Thanks. Catch you later. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle, of course, and it would mean the world to me if you would go ahead and leave us a review and follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts, really. The Kiss My Aesthetic Facebook group is also going to be a killer resource for you to ask questions, get feedback on anything branding, marketing, or entrepreneurship related. And to catch today's show notes or anything that we talked about in this episode, make sure you go to mkwcreative.co slash kmapod. We'll catch you next time.